Welcome back to Hitchcock Chronologically. I feel refreshed and renewed. Uh, one of the benefits of... I, I record this show in advance. I record at the time of speaking. I've got two uh, episodes banked, but at one point was even a month ahead of schedule. And the good thing about being able to do that is, is that when I watch a movie so bad, it breaks my will and my enthusiasm to do this show. Uh, it allows me to take several weeks off. So let me say this. I went so far as to record a message saying I'm taking a break after watching Juno and the Peacock because it was that bad. <sighs> but fortunately, since there was a month of movies banked, I was able to allow myself to not uh, do this show for a couple weeks and then come back to it. And uh, I'm glad I did. Not saying that this movie this week's any good. It's just I needed to recharge. And now maybe if I can get a couple more banked, I'll be prepped again should another Juno and the Paycock come down the pipe. Uh, but that didn't happen this time. We got a movie called Murder. And uh, there's an exclamation point on it. So just keep that in mind. For, you don't have to. It has nothing to do with anything. Uh, but with a title like Murder... We know we're you're there's at least gonna be murder in this, right? They wouldn't put out a movie without murder in it called Murder. Well they didn't. I there's a murder. One singular murder in this. Um This came out in nineteen thirty, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, of course, and doesn't star any of the familiar names with the exception of one. If if you remember back to the episode called Downhill. Uh, there was a, and she was also in Easy Virtue. There was a woman in there that I described as a very tall, a large woman, looked like she played for the NFL, had a mustache. Well, she's in this. She plays uh, a role of a juror. And I do have a brief sound clip of her that we'll get into when we get to that scene. But uh, this movie opens up. So let me say something. I, I, I've been out of the silent movies, but unfortunately, these last two, Murder and Juno and the Peacock, I've had to watch with subtitles because there are so many portions in this movie where the sound quality isn't great that I I cannot hear anything. And then you'll see, there's another part where the movie just works against itself as far as being able to convey information to the viewer because this is a murder mystery. And so while you're watching a murder mystery, you want to get all the details and the clues to see if you can figure out who did what, right? But if you can't hear anything, but if you can't understand what's being said on screen, then it kind of makes this type of movie hard. So I had to have subtitles on. So essentially, it's a noisy, silent movie. If there is such a thing, that's what murder is. Uh, so our movie opens up with this murder. No, you don't actually see the murder because that would remove any uh, whodunit suspense. But they're in a neighborhood and uh, the Markhams, a, a husband and wife, um, wake up to a loud thunking and hear screaming. And they go down and find a woman dead uh, whose name is Duce. Uh, she is dead next to a woman named Diana Baring. Uh, and Dinah Baring is very much alive and awake and next to the murder weapon. So she's immediately thought to be the killer. She doesn't even deny it because apparently she can't remember not doing it. 
So she assumes that she did do it. This is ringing a bell of another movie I saw recently where someone couldn't remember if they had done it or not, but they just assumed they did. I don't know. And maybe I've just been watching too much true crime TV. Uh, man, it's really ringing a bell now that I've mentioned it. Anyway, uh, so we go to uh, her trial. So this pretty much moves a little quickly. Uh, we get um, her trial, which moves pretty quickly. So at first I'm like, okay, things are happening. Things are moving. Don't worry. It'll slow way down. But, um, we get to her trial and you hear a couple arguments and then we spend a large portion of time in the jury room as they're making their decision. The jury is made up of, uh, let's see, 13 people, I believe. And let me do them. Yeah. 12 people. I don't know how many. All right. But three of them are women. And, um, I don't anyway. So. One of those women is our NFL player. She is back and she actually uh, is. So the whole time in this scene, there's that, that undertone of misogyny. And it's almost an overtone in this scene where the men just don't take the women seriously. And they don't really want their opinion on the matter. Uh, and maybe I'm reading into that because this came out in the 30s. But that's what it seems like to me. Also, I should note, this is firmly in the Depression era, but. I don't, there's nothing in this movie that really has anything to do with the depression that I can tell. Uh, so they're having a discussion. All the men are not really saying anything of value. Uh, and they all, but they all are kind of dismissing the women until the actress Violet Fairbrother, uh, who is that large woman we've seen in previous movies. Uh, she's playing one of the jurors and she says this. Now take the defense. They don't deny she did it, but argue that their case is that the thing happened when uh, she was in a fit or something. Surely it is clear to you that in the evidence for the defense, the doctor put forward a theory that it was due to the independent activity of the suppressed experience. In other words, disassociation, which in this particular form is called a fume. So that a person displaying the strangest behavior for a considerable period of time would be quite unaware of this when he or she regained normality. Now, you tell me, if you have some, one of these people in your jury, do you want the one that actually listened when the doctor came on and explained a medical condition? That's who I want. So she's clearly the smartest person in the room. However, she allows these guys to talk her out of this, so what they do, because this this speech of hers, it as brief as it was, confounds some of the guys, and only one of them's brave enough to admit it. Uh, but they say, so the head, uh, what do they call him? The head juror says, okay, let's just write down our votes, and then we'll discuss from there. So it's everybody votes guilty except for three people, and then there was uh, one person maybe two, I can't remember exactly, who did not vote at all. And the one guy that didn't said he didn't vote because he was so dumbfounded and couldn't wrap his brain around the explanation that the only intelligent person in the room gave that he didn't vote at all. Like, it blew his mind. Well, they talk him into voting guilty. And they go around the room and they talk. So they go to another guy, who at least he's willing to say this, but he said he voted not guilty 
because she looks good. And he used different words, but basically they all call him out for it. She's too hot to be guilty is basically his explanation. Well, they talk him into switching his vote. And there, uh, there might have been another one or something, but we get down to who's our protagonist in this movie, Sir John. Who I've been on a jury recently within the last year. Actually, right before quarantine, back in March. And I know that, and and this takes place in the UK, but in the United States, they spend a lengthy period of time vetting all of the jurors. And one of the things they do is make sure you're not familiar with any of the people involved in the trial. We come to find out that Sir John basically knows everyone in this trial. He's a He's a famous playwright, and this takes place with all of these uh, actors, and not just actors, but actors he's worked with before in the past. Now, this would immediately get you dismissed in America from being able to serve on a jury. You're, you're supposed to go in as a blank slate, an unbiased witness who can take all the information in and then make your decision with the jury based only on the evidence presented in the court. He doesn't do that. I don't know if he lied during the vetting process or if they just don't do it. They just pick however many people are available and roll with it, right? So anyway, they Sir John's the last holdout. And he's like, and he says things that don't make sense. Like the reason he's holding out is essentially... He doesn't think she could have done it. He's not basing it on the evidence. And they say in the trial that you can't base it on the way someone looks because she's an attractive woman. You're not supposed to uh, allow that to influence your verdict. All right. You base it on the evidence, not the person there. And he essentially does that. He says, well, I just don't think she could do it. He never presents any sort of real case as to why he's voting not guilty. But anyway, they talk him into it. He votes guilty. She gets sentenced to hang. Now, in the United States, again, when someone goes on death row, it can take decades. It can take forever. Some, I think more people die on death row in America than actually make it to their sentencing where they're actually executed. I don't know. I don't have the numbers on it, but there are you know, killers who have been found 20 years ago that are still alive on death row. Anyway, I don't know why I'm bringing that up, but apparently here they move pretty quickly. So Sir, it's hot in this room. Sir John has an uneasy feeling. He feels like maybe he did the wrong thing. Why didn't he fight more? And there's this whole thing about there's a glass of brandy that someone drank out of, but it wasn't either of the women uh, so there was clearly a third person there, and that's what they're trying to figure out. And again, the whole time, though, uh, Diana, who is the uh, person who is on trial, the defendant, is not denying the accusations. So it's it's a slam dunk, basically. If she can't out and out deny them, I guess, as you heard, the, the only defense is this insanity plea, which is what we would call it in the States. Uh, so... Sir John decides to, so this main character, Sir John, is supposed to be our hero, but there's something about this guy I don't like. He has a punchable face, okay, but his whole thing is 
he didn't stand up for in the jury. And when he tried to, well, he did briefly, I should say, but when he tried to, he didn't present any evidence. And now because he's rich, he's going to throw his weight around and do his own investigation. So he gets these two actors who also worked with the plaintiff or excuse me, the defendant and the person who's been murdered, the victim, and he hires them to help him investigate and go from all these places that they've been. Cause this couple, the Markhams, uh, were in the same neighborhood when this murder happened. Uh, so the first thing they do, they go to the scene of the crime and there's actually a picture of Sir John here. Um, I don't, I, they do explain it, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the plot at all. Basically, the lady is a big fan, so she has a picture of him. Again, another reason he shouldn't have been on the, the jury, but they did, I guess the police did investigate. That's how these mysteries work, where someone's wrongly accused. They didn't investigate at all. Uh, so he goes there and just asks if someone can come through a window. And then she, the, the landlady who's there says she heard three female voices, I guess. And so to prove a point in the stupidest scene in this movie, Sir John goes to the next room and then yells for help in a high pitched voice, which easily fools this landlady into thinking that there's a woman in the next room. And he comes in and actually, I'm sorry I had to trick you, but uh, that was me doing a high pitch. It's so bad. It is real dumb. And you could tell that it was a guy doing a high-pitched voice. It, it shouldn't have fooled anyone. Squeaky voice, that reminds me. In your evidence, Miss Mitchell, you said you heard angry women's voices. Yes, sir, I did. Would you swear to that? Oh, yes, sir. You can't mistake a woman's voice. You know, I had known a contralto. Oh, yes, but this was high, quite high. Miss Mitchell! Miss Mitchell! Oh, my God! One moment, Miss Mitchell. Excuse me, sir. I can't stop just now. That Alice of mine has set the kitchen chimney afire. Didn't you hear that calling? No, no, no. That was me. I'm ashamed to say I played a trick on you, Miss Mitchell. (sighs) Ah! All right. So, early before the trial, a lot of the questioning stuff happens uh, while there's a play going on and they're at the playhouse. And you get introduced to... Uh, A couple of the actors and spoiler alert, one of them is the killer. Uh, But this killer is briefly on camera until we get to the latter half of the movie or latter quarter, even of the movie, when they start to suspect the killer. Uh, So after this investigation, they decide that. It would be best if, so there was so this whole thing about two police officers, like the Markhams, the wife of the Markhams says, hey, here are the police. And then she looks again and they're gone. And then her husband, Mr. Markham looks out and says, oh, no, there they are. But it turns out that that was two police officers. And the first one they assume now is a fake police officer. And earlier in the movie, you see, this person who did it put on a police costume. They make it pretty obvious who the killer is um, throughout the bulk of this. I don't know why there's this guy 
who's a play actor, and he tends to also play a lot of female characters, which is why he was able to high-pitch his voice and trick the woman that runs this hotel. So our anyway, Sir John decides to investigate and come up with more ideas. He's going to sleep in the same hotel room as a policeman that was there, uh, which uh, I believe was the... Uh, the guy's name is Fane, F-A-N-E, the actual killer who we find out. Sorry to spoil this movie that came out in the 30s, but too bad. He is stayed, I guess, at this hotel in this room. And he gets, uh, Sir John gets some more information from the person who's kind of, it's like a, I think it's closer to Airbnb because this um, family runs it and they entire family runs into sir john's room and wakes him up and i'm talking several kids like three or four one of them is holding a kitten that she gives the sir john another one of them climbs all over sir john and then like the the proprietor is in there with a young baby who's crying the whole time now get this while this is happening she gives some very important information about who did this. Now, remember I said that this movie was hard to understand and I needed to use subtitles? Well, if it wasn't, it would be in this scene because the baby on her shoulder is crying through the whole thing. And just to make you suffer with me, here's what I listened to. You got something your own, I suppose. Yes, I have. You were saying about Arthur and the luggage. Oh, yes. Well, Arthur was messing about with one of them's luggage when he came across what he thought was his father's helmet and uniform. Afterwards, I went up. Mr. Fane it was, and I said, I don't like the idea of your hitting my Arthur. Just because he's found a stage uniform in your bag, he only thought it was his father's, I said. Well, I felt a bit of a fool when I'd finished because he simply turned round and he said he didn't know what I was talking about. Well, I said, if it wasn't you, it must have been the other one who was lodging with you, Mr. Stewart. I never speak to Mr. Stewart afterwards, but in the excitement of the murder, I forgot all about it. Now, you tell me exactly what was said in that scene. Because I'm not fully sure, and I watched it with subtitles. But basically, Mr. Fane, who I've already told you is the guilty party, was in that hotel room and had the police costume from before, which he blamed on someone else. Mr. Stewart, I think. I could be wrong. But he's blaming it on someone else who also might have had that costume. But again, they, they don't do a great job of keeping a secret who the killer is. Uh, that knock you heard at the end of that scene was Mr. Markham coming in because he had found a cigarette case uh, at the playhouse that had blood on it. And uh, so again, Sir John, as opposed to turning this over to the police, decides he's going to keep it and do his own investigation. But now, basically, we at this point, we know it's either Mr. Fane or Stuart because they are the two actors who wear the police costumes at the play. These are tenuous connections at best. Uh, so now, the only thing left for Sir John to do is head down to prison and talk to Diana herself, the convicted murderer. And she doesn't really want to talk about the trial or the murder at all she's not interested but he really keeps bringing it back up uh and basically she says that being in jail is worse than dying so she's actually looking forward to her death sentence being carried out because she hates being in jail um she tells sir john why don't you just stay in your house for one whole day just one day 
and see how that feels. Now here in quarantine, hey, I feel you, lady, but it's not that bad. I mean, granted, you're in prison. I'm here recording a podcast in front of my TV and computer and video games. So, all right, fair enough. You're a little worse off than me. Now, I have a question. Is it okay for a former juror to go see the person in jail that they convicted? Is that okay? Now, I wasn't told not to when I was a juror, but I was also an alternate, so I didn't get to actually sit in the room and come up with a verdict. But I, I, maybe, maybe it's fine. I guess you're free at that point to do so. Uh, she had mentioned, uh, Diana did, that they were having an argument with the, the, the person who got killed, Miss Duche, and herself about her, Diana's love interest. Uh, and Duce was saying bad things about her or him, excuse me. So Diana put her fingers in her ears and she couldn't hear anything else. So this is when the murder happened, I guess, while she's plugging her ears or something because now Miss Duce is dead and you find out. And so I guess John, Sir John deduces this and he's like, hey, I actually think you're just protecting, you know, who killed them, but you're protecting them because you're in love with them. And she lets it slip that they, the person she is protecting. And I looked it up because I'd never heard this word before. And I'm not going to repeat it, but it's a derogatory term for someone who is multiracial. And I apologize if that's not the correct term, but I have a hard time seeing how that couldn't be it, but it's someone who has parents of different ethnicities. And apparently back in the thirties in England, which again, I understand we've talked about racism on this podcast. And apparently at this time it's scandalous and our murderers protecting this information about themselves because it's a secret that if it got out, it would be a huge problem. Now, what I'm thinking is, is that the reason that's a huge problem is that he would not get the same benefits he would get as a white guy because the killer, despite having multiple ethnicities in his background, looks like a white guy and gets all the benefits of being white, especially in Europe. So I guess that's why the motive is right. That's the motive is that the secret's going to come out. And actually, we find out that he he is in love with Diana, who's now serving his sentence. What kind of love story is that? He didn't want her to find out that he had this background in his life. So he kills the woman next to her, but come to find out she already knew and didn't care because she's not racist. Well, we find out that our killer, uh, we know at this point that it's Mr. Fame. And we find out that uh, he is not finding any work as an actor, so he's working as a trapeze artist because he's in the uh, circus and he's known for being in the circus. So Sir John gets this idea. I don't know if you've seen Hamlet, uh, but there's a, a scene in Hamlet where, uh, and I'm going to get parts of it wrong, but basically they, they write a play in Hamlet and reenact the play. One of the scenes is a murder that they know was committed and they show it to the person who committed the murder. So they know that they knew 
seems convoluted. It was back then, and it is in this one. So they call in Mr. Fane, because again, Sir John is this playwright who runs these theaters. He's rich and famous, and says, hey, I want you to read for a part. And the part is the part of the killer in a retelling of the story that we've just been told. Uh, the Diana Barrow case, or whatever her name was. Hold on. Diana Barring. Or Baring. So as they're acting this out, this scene of the killer, he does things like talk about where he should get the poker from. And he comes from the window, even without it being in the script. And so they're kind of getting these clues from him. But at some point, Fane realizes that he's basically incriminating himself and decides to stop and leave. So they go to, when I say they, the police and uh, Mr. Markham and uh, Sir John, they go to the circus again when Fane is going to perform on the trapeze. And they go backstage and they talk to him and they're like, you know why we're here, but they're going to let him finish his performance. And I don't know if they actually have, I guess they do because the cops are there, so they must have enough evidence. And as Fane is performing his trapeze, you, they do this like crossover thing where you can see what's running through his mind. He's remembering the face of Diana. Uh, he's remembering or he's seeing the the police downstairs along with Sir John, and he realizes he's about to go to jail. And so uh, once he finishes his routine, he goes back up to the, you know, trapeze artists, they have this tower that they swing from. He goes back to the top of that tower, ties a noose, and then hangs himself. Uh, to the shock of everyone in attendance, you know, as that would be, uh, they go back to Fane's locker room and there's a note or a page and that page is him writing out the rest of the script that he was reading essentially confessing uh, that he was the killer and uh, this information allows uh, Diana to go free and uh, as soon as she's freed Sir John offers her a role and uh, we close the movie seeing Sir John acting opposite of Diana in a play and they have a, they share a stage kiss. Now I'm thinking that maybe they're together now, because at no point does Sir John have a love interest of any kind. So I don't know. But so I want to say that I did not like Sir John. He is a smug, arrogant asshole, and I say that because the only reason he does what he does, and we find out when he's having that interview with Diana in the jail that he had sent her on like a, a tour essentially to go improve at acting. And that put her in the path of Mr. Fane. And so he sort of feels some sort of, uh, what's the word responsibility, right? And again, he did that before he served on the jury. He should not have been on the jury and he feels guilty, which is warping his perception. I think this movie would have been better had you found out she was guilty and Sir John was wrong and just thought that he could throw his money around and do what he wanted and it didn't work. That would have made the movie better because it would have been just at that point, even though in the movie she didn't do it. 
but he at no point is con- the only thing that convinces him that she's not guilty is how he felt about her when she was on the stand. But that's not all because he had this background of her as an actor who he had enough of a relationship with to send her on an acting tour. Oh boy, this is not a good movie. Um, it's not bad. Like it's not as bad as Juno and the Peacock, which to me, Despite all the silent movies I've seen, Juno and the Peacock is the worst. And it's not even silent. I'll never watch that movie again. It's awful. So it's not that bad. And it's not as good as Blackmail was. So, but it has it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? It's a thumbs down. Don't, you skip this one. It's not worth your time. Okay, so our next movie it's called The Skin Game. Came out in 1931. I don't know what this is. Uh, it says that the, an old an old traditional family and a modern family, like from the TV show, I guess, battle over land in a small English village and almost destroy each other. That could be good. Could be bad as well. I'm going to guess it's not good. So, well... If you want to get in touch with me, you can email hitchcockchronologically at gmail.com. You can also click the Discord link in the description. That will take you over to the Budget Arcade Discord, where I am. Uh, Also, if you want to hear more from me, you can listen to Budget Arcade uh, wherever I get your podcast. It's about video games, free-to-play video games specifically. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week.